back. Thank you for the warm welcome, Ben. Another warm Newcastle afternoon today, wasn't it? And uh, I do appreciate the warm weather. Um, before we get into tonight's topic, which is did we really evolve, we have two sessions again tonight. We have a lot to cover, but I want to address uh, a few questions that came in. And um, we had a number of questions. We'll do some each evening. And so uh, I just want to cover a couple of questions that uh, came in. One question came in and uh, on the cards uh, that um, says, can you explain a little bit more of the authority of the Bible if it's the only inspired book? Um, I guess in a way, the rest of this series is going to, to do that. I think that if you uh, continue to come to the series, the messages in the series, we're going to cover material that hopefully will encourage you and uh, give you confidence that the Bible is an inspired book. I think the material that we share will help to do that. And so rather than uh, cover details now, the subjects that we cover, I believe, will, will do that. Another question that came in was, when was the Bible first published? And we actually covered that in the last session, although this person may not have realised it, when we talked about the fact that the Bible was the first book printed on a, a printing press in uh, around 1450 in Germany by Johannes Gutenberg. He invented the printing press and the first book printed was the Holy Bible and it was uh, printed in German. And well, Actually, no, it was printed in, in Latin. It was later translated into German. But um, before that, of course, it was handwritten. It was hand-copied. And uh, that's, uh, you know, we talked about the many manuscripts that exist, ancient manuscripts of the Bible, and those were the source material for that copying. Another person wrote this question, why is hell uh, happening and not a place? We're going to talk about hell. Perhaps you've wondered in the subject uh, of, around God and the Bible. Perhaps you've wondered about what does hell mean? What is hell all about? Where is hell? We're actually going to cover that subject in a whole full presentation. And uh, believe it or not, I was tempted to call that subject the good news about hell. Because... Uh, I guess I, growing up as an atheist, I had this notion of what people believed hell to be, and I thought, that doesn't sound very pleasant. Not that I'm telling you it's a holiday camp, but I'm telling you that hell is perhaps not what you may have thought it was, and we're going to unpack that subject in a full way when we cover that topic. But thank you for those questions, and as uh, Lisette mentioned, as Ben mentioned, if uh, you would like to ask a question, please put it in on the card. We'll collect those each time and uh, we'll get to those questions at the beginning of each evening. Another thing I want to say to you is we have a, uh, a gift, a book that we want to make available to you. If you come to Five Nights, we want to give you that book for free. And the only way we know you've come for Five Nights is if you keep putting your card in. So please keep returning those cards uh, when we ask for those response cards at the end of each session and we will make sure that you get the free gift when you come to five nights. And it doesn't mean you have to come to the first five, but if you come to any five, we will give you that free gift. All right, shall we get into tonight's first session? I think we should. Okay. The session, first session tonight is, did we really evolve? And we talked last night about evidence, reasonable evidence for the existence of God, reasonable evidence to believe the Bible. But somebody is going to say, how can we believe the Bible, particularly when the opening chapter of the Bible records how God created in six days 
And when you look at the Bible, that seems to be in the recent past, in other words, in thousands of years ago as opposed to billions of years ago. And how can we compare that with what the theory of evolution teaches, that I'm sure most of us would have learned in high school, certainly I did, and hasn't evolution been established as fact? And we want to look at that tonight because that, to me, I have found to be, for many people, has been a stumbling block as to whether they can believe the Bible or not. And so that's why we want to cover this subject. So when we look at this topic, there are really two competing theories as to how we got here. Two competing theories about the origins of life. One, of course, is special creation. The Bible, the opening line of the Bible says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then it proceeds to say how God did that in a brief way. And then, of course, there is the theory of evolution, which is that life evolved over billions of years, millions of years of ra random chance interactions and that we have the multiple of life that we have today. And when we talk about evolution, I want to talk about a specific kind because when I talk about that word evolution, I want you to understand what I mean. There are actually many types of evolution. The word evolution has been so broadly used now in the English language that it, it refers to things from all the way from cars to solar panels to whatever, we talk about the evolution of things, right? Which really we're talking about the development of things. And if we say, well, what is evolution? We might say, well, evolution is change over time. Well, I believe in change over time, right? We all believe in change over time, so what do we mean? Evolution can, can refer to a variety of things. Cosmic evolution deals with the origin of time and space. Then you've got chemical evolution, which obviously is the uh, origin of chemicals. Then you've got stellar and planetary evolution, the origin of uh, stars and galaxies and planets. Then you've got number four, organic evolution. That's the origin of life. Then you've got macroevolution, which is number five, which is uh, like molecules to man evolution, one kind of creature turning into another kind of creature over a vast time scale. And then finally, number six, you've got what we call microevolution. And microevolution is what Charles Darwin observed. Charles Darwin observed what he called natural selection. We might call it adaptation or variation within a kind. And that is the one, number six, that's the one we can abs absolutely readily observe. And so when I said to you the other night, there are some things about evolution I believe and some things I don't, I do believe in microevolution. It's undeniable. We do observe changes within creatures, variations within creatures. You ever had a, a litter of cats and they're different colours? You know, that's variation, isn't it? That's variation within a kind, but they're all cats. And so what I want to say is the only one of those that we've actually observed is microevolution. And this is important from an understanding of science. Science is... The ability to observe, record, and repeat experimentation so that we can know that this process produces this result. And we do that in the present. When we're talking about the history of the world and the origin of life, we're talking about something that happened way back in the past. When we were born onto this planet, life already existed, right? We have life in abundance all around us. If we're talking about the origin of life, we have to go way back in time. And none of us were there. 
And so science typically deals with things in the presence that we can observe today. When we talk about evolution or creation, we're dealing with something that happened in the past and what we can do is we look at the evidence around us and we say, which model does it fit the best? So I just want to mention that. So we do recognise microevolution, adaptations within kinds of creatures, but I don't believe in macroevolution, one kind turning into another kind. Okay? Cats produce cats, dogs produce dogs. So when I refer to evolution in tonight's programme, I'm typically talking about macroevolution, right? Molecules to man evolution. That's the one I'm referring to because I don't believe in that anymore, although I used to. I want you to notice something. It's kind of been assumed today, it's just assumed in our culture. You see it on the news, you see it in documentaries, you see it, even see it in films. It's assumed that evolution is true. It's fact. And I want to tell you that it is a theory. And I want you to notice here, in Time magazine, it says here, God versus science. And you won't be able to read that, so I'm going to read it for you. It says, God versus science, a spirited debate between atheist biologist Richard Dawkins and Christian geneticist Francis Collins. Okay, so two men are mentioned there, Richard Dawkins and Francis Collins. How many of them are scientists? Both of them. Both of them. How many of them are believers in God? One of them, right? There's a Christian versus an atheist, okay? But notice the, the title is God versus science. But hang on, both of them are what? They're both scientists. So don't be fooled by that notion that this debate is about God versus science. Because there are plenty of people who do believe in God, who do practice good science and believe in creation as well. So it's not God versus science. In fact, uh, this book that you see on the screen called In Six Days, Why 50 Scientists Choose to Believe in Creation. Um, it's edited by a, a friend of mine, actually, Dr. John Ashton. And uh, the way this book came about was there was a female student at a Sydney university and she was in one of the science classes and the, the lecturer up the front was uh, talking about uh, evolution and he was saying no scientist with a PhD would ever believe that God created in six days. And this girl raised her hand and says, I'm sure I know one. And she approached John, Dr. John Ashton and he approached some of his friends who approached other friends and before long he asked them if they would write an essay on why they believed in creation from their field of science. And 80 of them responded with an essay and he put the best 50 in a book and that's what that book is. So you have a book of scientists writing each chapter and they are different from different fields. So they're from physics and biology and chemistry and zoology and mathematics and all different variety of the sciences writing from their perspective why they believe in the God of the Bible, why they believe in creation. And uh, that's important. In six days, why 50 scientists choose to believe in creation. So don't buy the idea that all scientists believe in evolution. Okay? Even in the subsets of science, not all scientists agree on a particular theory that has been developed in their particular field. There's always debate. Okay? Now, most of the time in the press, 
It's usually very pro-evolution, but I want you to notice this. This was in 1999. This was a, a lift-out from the Sunday paper, the Sunday Herald Sundown in Melbourne. And uh, in this lift-out, it's called Divine Science, it says this. First came the Big Bang, much later the first spark of life in a primordial soup, a cell, a swamp, an ape, a human. It's a common thread in every science book, familiar to every student. But many scientists believe the origins of life are very different. Notice he says there are many scientists. They, the evidence, they say, is clear and compelling. It points not to evolution, but to creation, a deliberate act by an intelligent God. So sometimes you will see these things in the press, though most of the time the press is often slanted towards favouring evolution and rather presenting evolution as fact. Well, one of the subjects that has a bearing on this whole origins debate is how old is the earth anyway, right? Because the Bible says that God created just a few thousand years ago and then you have, uh, obviously, uh, the assumed age of the earth is 4.5 billion years, okay? So, uh, for instance, we go to places like the Grand Canyon, and you see there, uh, there has been a lot of erosion of the sediments, and so that has uh, laid bare, it has exposed many layers of these sediments, and you see thousands, maybe millions of different layers of rock, little finely graduated layers, and a, an evolutionary geologist would look at that and say, this represents millions of years of history. But how do they come to that conclusion? If you go to the Grand Canyon, you just stare at it, how do you come to that conclusion? You don't pick up a rock and it says, I am millions of years old, right? How do you know? Well, they do dating methods. Of course, the dating methods are printed, you know, in the papers. You've probably seen, you know, they've just dug up a skull, 350,000 you know, 350, years old or whatever. How do you know that it's that age? Well, let's have a look. Maybe you've heard of radiometric dating methods. These are the methods that are used to date rock. Now, not to be confused with carbon dating. Carbon dating is another type of method, and carbon dating is used to date things that were once alive, okay, like wood and uh, bone, things like that. But when we're talking about radiometric uh, dating methods, we're talking about dating rock, and they use methods such as potassium argon, argon uranium lead, rubidium strontium, and they compare the elements in the rock. Let me tell you briefly how it works, not being a geologist myself. However, let me tell you how it works. Let's suppose you take the um, uranium lead method. You take a piece of rock, you take it to the lab. They examine how much uranium and how much lead is in a rock. You see, uranium is a radioactive element, right? As it decays, lead is a daughter product that is produced. And they measure how much uranium is in the rock and how much lead has been produced. And they know what the current rate of decay is today and so you extrapolate backwards until there's no lead in the rock. Bingo, you have your date for the rock. Three million years old. However, it has become apparent that there are some challenges to these methods, problems with these methods. Number one, how much of each substance was in the rock originally? In other words, if there was any lead present in that rock at the formation of that rock, that's going to change dramatically how old that rock is assumed to be. 
Uh, has the decay rate remained constant over millions of years? I think it was 1911 when they first began to use these methods of dating the rocks. How do we know that that decay rate has remained constant over millions or nay billions of years? And thirdly, was any of each substance added by an environmental change or a catastrophic event such as an earthquake, volcanic eruption or flooding? Because they've come to understand more recently that these things can alter the results that you find in those rocks. Let me just uh, read this. This is Frederick Juneman. And uh, he wrote this. He says, The age of our globe is presently thought to be some 4.5 billion years based on radioactive rates of uranium and thorium. Such confirmation may be short-lived, as nature is not to be discovered quite so easily. There has been in recent years the horrible realisation that radio decay rates are not as constant as previously thought, nor are they immune to environmental influences. And this could mean that the atomic clocks are reset during some global disaster, and events which brought the Mesozoic period to a close may not be 65 million years ago, but rather within the age and memory of man. Now, I want to unpack this a little bit. When he talks about the Mesozoic period, that's approximately 65 million years ago, he's saying that those rocks that are dated as 65 million years old may not be that old if the method is flawed. And he's saying, uh, by the way, 65 million years ago is the time that it is believed that the dinosaurs disappeared. And he's saying that perhaps they may not be 65 million years ago, but actually may be within the age and memory of man. You may think that's ludicrous, but we're going to come on to more evidence from the dinosaurs a little bit later. So just stay tuned. Here's another quote. This is William Stanfield, PhD, uh, from California Polytechnic State University. He says, It is obvious that radiometric techniques may not be the absolute dating methods they claim to be. Age estimates on a given geological stratum by different radiometric methods are often quite different, sometimes by hundreds of millions of years. There is no absolutely reliable long-term radiological clock. The uncertainties inherent in radiometric dating are disturbing to geologists and evolutionists. But you don't see that in the headlines much, right? And so basically what he's saying is you get a rock, you take it to a lab, you say, I'd like to use this method, tell me the age of that rock, 300 million years, thank you very much. Take the same piece of rock to a different lab, use a different method upon it, and it will sometimes give you a different date, sometimes by hundreds of millions of years. And the question is, which one's right, and how do you know either of them are right? I believe what they do is they date what the rock is made of, not how old it is. And that's the difference. That's the difference. It tells you what the, what's in the rock today, but it doesn't tell you how old that rock is. Well, some believe when we come to the theory of evolution that it has been demonstrated and proven perhaps, okay, maybe not so much by the dating methods, but what about the fossil record? Surely the fossil record provides conclusive evidence for evolution. Well, David Raup, Dr. David Raup, who was uh, a paleontologist, he said this, he said, Darwin's theory of natural selection has always been closely linked to evidence from fossils, and probably most people assume that fossils provide a very important part of the general argument that is made in favour of Darwinian interpretation of the history of life. Unfortunately, this is not strictly true. 
So here's somebody who deals with fossils all the time and he's saying most people think that the evidence for evolution is in the fossils. But then he says, unfortunately, this is not strictly true. If we look at some of the fossils, maybe one of the questions we want to ask is, does it take millions of years to make a fossil? They have discovered a lot of fossils that actually demonstrate that this is not the case. So <clears throat> this one's called fast food. This is one big fish swallowing a smaller fish. He's having dinner, okay? Now, I don't know how long it takes you to eat your lunch, but my, my guess is it doesn't take millions of years, right? In other words, the only way you're going to capture that living creature like that is to bury it in a bucket of wet cement or something, right? This is the only way you're going to snap freeze that image before he's had time to finish his meal. Does that make sense? And they've actually recognised today something which Darwin didn't know, but today they recognise that flood conditions are some of the best conditions for creating fossils because you have to have the right chemical balance, but you have to bury things rapidly, otherwise they don't preserve. If uh, I have a little dog, and if my dog were to die, I hope that doesn't happen, but if my dog was to die, and we just put him out there on the lawn, and we said, uh, don't touch the dog, it's fossilising, <laughs> how many of you believe that it will fossilise? It's not going to fossilise. The birds will be pecking at it, it's going to break down. Yeah, I know, not a very pretty picture. The wind and the rain is going to, you know, come upon it. The sun's going to beat down on it. It's not going to be there. You've seen roadkill, right? It's not going to be there in a thousand years' time. The only way you create fossils is you have to bury them rapidly. Otherwise, they're not preserved. And especially when you have images like this, where you have these images that are obviously captured very rapidly, otherwise he wouldn't have finished his meal. This is a famous fossil of an ichthyosaur. This is an extinct sea creature, but this ichthyosaur is actually giving birth to another ichthyosaur. How long does it take to give birth, ladies? Millions of years. <laughs> Probably feels like that at the time, but it doesn't take millions of years to give birth. And the only way you're going to capture this is if you bury it rapidly. Darwin, uh, well, he talks about fossils, but let me talk about this one. There are many, I think there are over 500 examples of what we call living fossils. That means that you have them in the fossil record supposedly million years, millions of years ago, but you can also find them alive, the same creature today on the earth. And the horseshoe crab is one of those. The coelacanth is another. And there are 500 examples of living fossils. They're supposed to be millions of years old because they're in the fossil record, but they haven't changed. Why have they not changed? Well, perhaps the fossil isn't that old. And we know that the dating of the fossils is based on the rock around them. We've already talked about the dating methods for rocks. And then, of course, there are soft tissue fossils that have been found, like jellyfish, for instance. Uh, Darwin wrote in one of his books that no soft tissue creature could ever be found fossilised. Well, we found lots of them now. We even found raindrops that have been fossilised. So here we have soft tissue creatures like jellyfish that have been fossilised. And, uh, you know, you've probably seen jellyfish wash up on the beach from time to time, right? How long do they last? Millions of years. Well, no, it doesn't take one afternoon for, you know, the sun beating down on them, they don't last very long. So you have to have specific conditions 
for burial. Well, when we talk about fossils, there was a very uh, fascinating experience. Dr. Mary Schweitzer was working on a leg bone of a T-Rex dinosaur. It was discovered, the dinosaur was discovered in 1990. She was working on this uh, leg bone a few years later, and they found soft tissue in the dinosaur leg bone. Okay, it hadn't fully fossilised. In fact, they went as far as to say they have found uh, blood vessels and blood cells. How many of you have seen the uh, film Jurassic Park? And you know how they like uh, get the dino DNA out of the mosquito. You remember that? Out of the you know, mosquito covered in amber? Well, they don't need to do that anymore because you can get dino DNA from soft tissue from dinosaurs if you really wanted to do that. And this isn't the only one. They've since found many other dinosaur bones that have soft tissue in them. And they're saying, how is it possible that these remains are actually 68 million years old? And yet we've still got soft tissue. Not only is it soft tissue, they actually can pull it apart and it springs back. It's elastic. And it's a real challenge to the idea that it's 68 million years old. I believe that it's not that old. I think that it's probably not that old. All this was uh, recorded in an SBS um, documentary called Dinosaurs, The Hunt for Life. You may have seen it. It was on a couple of years ago. And uh, this is well publicised now, but it's a real challenge to the evolutionary idea that dinosaurs died out 65 million years ago. They had a Chicago conference where they brought together a lot of the leading evolutionists. And this was back in October 1980. Does anybody remember that? <laughs> but here's a quote from it. It says, Evidence from fossils now points overwhelmingly away from the classical Darwinian Darwinism most Americans learned in high school. So that's what they were saying in 1980. But most of us learn the typical story in school and the research, we're not catching up on the research that's actually telling us, you know, there's something wrong with the theory. There are holes in the theory. It's interesting in the Bible, there's a line in the Bible from the book of Job which says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? It's probably a valid question. This is God asking a question of somebody in the Bible. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And the answer is, we weren't there at all. <laughs> None of us were there. And uh, the biblical account is that God created the world and he created the life upon it. And some people are challenged by that because they think about the extraordinary power, the extraordinary wisdom that God must have to do that. And they say, that's, not, that's too big for me. Well, let me tell you, the God of the Bible is big, right? He's bigger than your imagination. There's a verse in the Bible that says, nothing is too hard for him. You have to expand your concept of what God can be because the Bible declares that not only did he create the earth, he created the heavens and he stretched out the heavens, the Bible says. So we have to grow our idea of what we think God is because he's much, much bigger than that. Professor Michael Behe, he's a biochemist and he began research into DNA and uh, other systems in the body 
And he wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box because he was an evolutionist, but he began to see that he was seeing evidence that challenged Darwinian evolution. He says this, in the face of the enormous complexity that modern biochemistry has uncovered in the cell, the scientific community is paralysed. No one at Harvard University, no one at the National Institutes of Health, no member of the National Academy of Sciences, no Nobel Prize winner, no one at all can give a detailed account of how psyllium or vision or blood clotting or any complex biochemical process might have developed in a Darwinian fashion. But, he says, we are here. Plants and animals are here. The complex systems are here. All these things got here somehow, if not in a Darwinian fashion, then how? And then he um, writes another passage in the book, and I had a friend of mine do this cartoon. So you look at the cartoon and imagine what's being written here by Professor Michael Behe. He says, imagine a room in which a, a body lies crushed, flat as a pancake. A dozen detectives crawl around examining the floor with magnifying glasses for any clue as to the identity of the perpetrator. The detectives carefully avoid bumping into the pachyderm's legs as they crawl and never even glance at it. Over time, the detectives get frustrated with their lack of progress, but resolutely press on, looking even more closely at the floor. There is an elephant in the room full of scientists who are trying to explain the development of life. The elephant is labelled intelligent design. To a person who does not feel obliged to restrict his search to unintelligent causes, the straightforward conclusion is that many biochemical systems were designed. They were designed not by the laws of nature, not by chance and necessity, rather they were planned. The designer knew what the systems would look like when they were completed. The designer took steps to bring the systems about. Life on Earth at its most fundamental level, in its most critical components, is the product of intelligent activity. And he came to that conclusion. He's not a religious guy. He's not a guy who believes you know, in God. He's not a, a Bible thumper from the corn patch. He's a scientist, but he came to that conclusion based on his research. He said it must have involved intelligence. You know, Charles Darwin recognised some of the challenges in his own theory. In fact, uh, he was hesitant about publishing his book, The Origin of Species. He had other friends around him encourage him to publish. And he said uh, this, he says, to suppose that the eye, with all of its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration, could have been formed by natural selection, seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. That's Darwin's words. He's recognising that he, he, he can't grasp how it could have happened, but he thinks it must have. Michael Behe and some of his research and other scientists are in a DVD that was produced a few years ago called Unlocking the Mystery of Life, and it's well worth getting your hands on that. And it talks about what they have discovered in the human cell and in DNA that demonstrates how complex it is and how it couldn't possibly have come around by chance. You'll notice Dr. Brendan Nelson here on the left. Um, he was Minister for Education back in 2004. You may remember he used to be leader of the Liberal Party at one point. But he said back in 2004, as Minister for Education, he believed every high school student should get to see that DVD. I don't know how many high school students have. <laughs> but 
I think it would be well worth looking at. You know, what they have found really in the DNA material is uh, just an abundance of information. And information we know only comes from intelligence. Information doesn't arise by accident. Information comes from intelligence. And, uh, you know, I mentioned the other day the search for, uh, for extraterrestrial intelligence, part of the NASA project, uh, one of NASA's projects. It says any day now we'll pick up a tiny coded signal then we'll know for certain that there is intelligence out there because coded information does not arise by chance. And then you look on the other side where they're explaining DNA and it says the precisely coded information in each cell would fill many books but we know for certain that no intelligence created life. Can you see the discrepancy there? We're looking out into the heavens hoping to hear some coded information and we would take that as evidence of intelligent life but we're not prepared to look at the information in the human cell and say that is the product of intelligence. It's a bit contradictory. Of course, the Bible says, then God said, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. The reason this is important is because it tells us something about who we are as humans. The Bible records that we were made in the image of God. We are special in the universe. We're special on this planet. The Bible says that human beings have dominion over this planet, over the creatures on this planet. We're meant to take care of the place. But it says we were made in the image of God. Of course, if you believe in evolution, then we arose from ape-like creatures, right? Maybe you remember this story a few years ago. You remember Adam Goods, who was playing for the Sydney Swans, and I think it was Sydney playing Collingwood, and there was a 13-year-old girl in the stands and, they, and she pointed at Adam Goods and called him an ape. And, she, and Adam Goods pointed her out and she was evicted from the ground. Anybody remember that story? It was on m most of the major news bulletins, right? Now, here's the thing. That was regarded as a racial slur, right? Calling Adam Goods because he's an Aborigine calling him an, an ape, that's regarded as a racial slur. And he was rightly offended. He was rightly offended. But here's the thing. Why is it regarded as a, a racial slur? It's regarded as a racial slur because when evolution was first taught, it was taught that certain races of humans are less developed than other races of humans. That's how it was taught. We now know that's nonsense. We're all the same species, right? We're all homo sapiens sapiens. But that's how it was taught. And by the way, if Adam Goods is rightfully offended by somebody calling him an ape, why aren't we all offended when we're taught that we're all apes in school? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, if that's a problem, which it is, why, isn't it, why is it a problem that we're teaching everybody that you're nothing more than a highly developed ape? Why isn't that a problem? Here's a cover of Time magazine, How We Evolved. I beg to differ. I beg to differ. And then people, I remember when I first um, became a Christian and I started to read the Bible and started to study into it, and my, a friend of mine says, you mean to tell me you believe in Adam and Eve? Really? You believe in Adam and Eve? And I said yes, and then he thought I'd really lost the plot. 
But did you know that scientifically we all go back to one single female and one single male? Are you aware of that? Scientifically. I mean, put the Bible aside for a moment. This is um, the Washington Post back in 1995. That's a while back. But notice what it says. Um, The headline is Genetics, an evolutionary mate for Eve. About 10 years ago, molecular... So when he says about 10 years ago, he's talking the mid-80s, right? The mid-80s. This has been around for a while. The mid-80s, molecular biologists found evidence in human genes that all people share a common female ancestor. Guess what they called her? Eve, right? They decided to call her Eve. Now comes corroboration from a different kind of study. Analysis of a part of the Y sex chromosome indicates that modern humans descend from a common male ancestor. What do you know? Genetics tells us that we're all descended from one common female ancestor, they call her Eve, and we're all descended from one common male ancestor. Who'd have thought? And people think we're strange for believing in Adam and Eve. It's scientific. This is the same report uh, published in a newspaper in 2002. Could this be the real Eve? It's probably very close to what she looked like. We don't have any photographs, so we wouldn't know. See, there are many inconsistencies with the theory of evolution. So if you believe in uh, the theory of evolution, then you 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 see certain kinds that you believe to be closely related. So when you look at these two dolphins, for instance... Evolutionists believe that cows and dolphins and whales are closely related. Why? In fact, have you ever heard, you've heard of the sea cow? Right. So they believe that back in the day we were, you know, we rose in the sea and we were fish and then we were amphibians and then reptiles, we became mammals and then some of the mammals went back to the sea because dolphins and whales are mammals. They're designated as such because they breathe air and they give birth to live young. And so if you believe in evolution, you believe cows and dolphins are closely related because the cows somehow... We have no evolutionary evidence for this, by the way. There's no fossilised evidence of cows going back to the sea. But that's what you're forced to conclude. Fred Hoyle, who I quoted the other last night, in fact, he was a British astronomer, he said this, he said, the chance that higher life forms, such as us, might have emerged in this way in an evolutionary fashion. It's comparable with the chance that a tornado sweeping through a junkyard might assemble a Boeing 747 from the materials therein. You see, what he's saying is chaos and chance random processes do not produce order and intelligence. Right? You just don't see that. You don't see a a tornado pass through and then suddenly a pile of bricks gets built into a building. Those things tend to destroy things. And you know, if you think about what a 747 is, it's a machine that's made up of millions of non-flying parts. You take the wings off, they don't fly. Take the engines off, that doesn't fly. Take the tail off, it doesn't fly. Take the guy out the cockpit, he doesn't fly. A 747 is a machine that's made up of lots and lots, millions of non-flying parts. What makes it fly? organization and intelligent design. And we give, we give awards to people who design those things. We don't give the award to the plane. We give the award to the designer of the plane. 
Why should we not give credit to the one who designed life? What about birds? Birds are infinitely more complex than aeroplanes. You know, they can navigate themselves, they can feed themselves, and they can reproduce after their kind. Never seen a 747 do that, right? Bible says, but now ask the beasts and they will teach you, and the birds of the air and they will tell you, or speak to the earth and it will teach you. And of the fish of the sea will explain to you, who among these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? Darwin said, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ exists that could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. I believe they've demonstrated that in abundance since the time of Darwin. And so he's saying himself, his theory would absolutely break down. I think it has. You know, up until the mid-19th century, all of the, pretty much all the scientists in the Western world believed that God created the heavens and the earth. In fact, all of the major scientists were started by people who believed that God created the heavens and the earth. Science was born out of a belief that God designed Malcolm Muggeridge, who's a British journalist and philosopher, he said, I myself am convinced that the theory of evolution, especially the extent to which it's been applied, will be one of the great jokes in the history books of the future. Posterity will marvel that so very flimsy and dubious a hypothesis could have been accepted with the incredible credulity that it has. A few last thoughts here. Such simple insects as bees, Darwin said, Making a beehive could be sufficient to overthrow my whole theory. Well, bees do actually make beehives, right? And uh, Professor Manjam Srinivasan, he won the uh, Prime Minister's Prize for, scientists, uh, for Science from John Howard in, I think, 2006. He wrote a paper, uh, he was doing some study into bees. He says, today we are trying to create small conventional aircraft with the brains of a bee. The future challenge is to bring in the engineering of a bee, Microflyers that can do what bees do. Well, who engineered the bee? Who made the brain of a bee? We're struggling to make a machine that can do what the bee does. The Bible says, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. God not only made life, he made the environment in which the life lives. And it's no mistake, it's no coincidence that the world works as well as it does. And Darwin said, often a cold shudder has run through me and I have asked myself whether I may have not devoted myself to a fantasy. Darwin was one of his own chiefest critics in terms of his own theory. And uh, I like this quote. This is Dr. Robert Jastrow, God and the Astronomer. Notice this. At this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the rock, the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. In other words, if we'd have believed that first line in the Bible, we might be making greater progress than we are now in terms of our scientific endeavour. 
because we're building on a faulty foundation and we're trying to make things fit into it. Why does this matter? What's the point? It matters because I think we're teaching generations of children that they're nothing more than pond scum. That they're born, they live for a while, then they die and that's it. You're just an animal. You have no greater value than an animal. And I think if we teach people that they're animals, they're going to behave like animals sometimes. And I think that it's about identity. Who are we as human beings? Do we have a purpose and do we have a hope? And I think one of those theories of origins produces none of those things and the other theory of origins produces all of those things. And I believe that we need to teach people that they are made in the image of God, they have value, they have purpose and there is hope. And that's what difference it makes. In the book of Psalms 139.14 it says, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvellous are your works and that my soul knows very well. In the first line of the Bible says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. I used to believe in evolution, I was an ardent believer in evolution, but I have since changed my mind and again I would say as I said last night, I had to go where the evidence leads and I believe this is where the evidence leads. Not to evolution, but to creation by a loving, caring, intelligent 